Welcome to the Traverse Podcast with me, Debbie Hannon. So, theatre has changed. COVID-19 has sent us into a reflective pause. It has inspired art, activism, the examination of power, and demanded a new normal as we all invent what comes next. This series is inspired by Arundhati Roy's statement, the pandemic is a portal. And these podcasts are a selection of interviews with the people who are shaping that future, inside and outside of theatre. They are intimate, candid conversations about lived experience where people speak their truth to power. It's important to say here that our interviewees speak freely on a range of topics. Whilst you might not share all their points of view, they are here to be heard. Each one is a provocation which looks to examine theatre making and storytelling, how we do it and its place in our new world. Today's guest is Leo Ray Gasson, a Glasgow-based director. She directs plays that are a mixture of theatre and virtual reality. So at one show, you might be in a room with a live band playing, but then you'll put on a headset that takes you to another world. Or in another show, you might lift up your phone and see an alternative world layered over the real life action. Here's Leo to explain it a bit better. Virtual reality, the easiest way to understand, I guess, is through a headset, which I think most people would see. You put a headset on and then you are in this other world. Depending on the level of tech you've got, you can like walk around and you can like use controllers to like point at things and use a lightsaber and look up and down. So it's a 360 degree environment you can move in. Augmented reality is Snapchat. Augmented reality is just like putting a digital thing on a camera. At its core, any filter on Instagram is with augmented reality but also you can make like whales jump out of your local swimming pool and like all sorts of things. Her work has been right at the bold frontier of mixing theatre and digital art for years and the pandemic has recently thrown digital forms of theatre into the spotlight. So I'm speaking to Leo today about how you tell stories in that format and still keep it theatrical. Content warning, we talk about trans rights in this interview, which means we also talk about transphobia. Hello, Leo. Hello. Do you want to give us a bit of insight as to where you are in the world right now? Yeah, I'm sitting in my dressing room in Glasgow next to all my coats. I'm going to kick off by asking you to describe what you do, ideally through an example of your work. I am a theatre director, but I work uh, across performance, VR and digital art. A good example is a show I made for the National Theatre of Scotland last year now, part of a festival called Dear Europe. It was called Death Becomes Us. So it's all in a warehouse and the first half of the show is a spatial audio experience for a blindfolded audience. And that was all responding to the Brexit campaign's phrase, take back control. So it was partly sort of Theresa May's speech, partly interviews with the dominatrix. And then at one point, the audience were unblindfolded. And I worked with a community chorus of European migrants. And there was sort of a big immersive funeral for Europe, which included us, featuring an amazing musician called Era the Cast which I think is quite a good example of my work because it involves like a little bit of sex, a little bit of digital techie stuff, some immersive things and some sort of conceptual participation. Air of the Curse is incredible. Yeah. That is like a work that asks huge, huge questions of our moment and what we're just doing together as people. If someone who makes such ambitious work that crosses all these forms, how do you think the pandemic is going to reshape what we think of as theatre? I think I think it's going to reshape things in the best way. I think the optimist in me is like, this has to restructure systems that don't work. 
um, that we all know don't work. The let's spend 50 weeks writing a funding application for four grand for six white people to get in a room together is, is completely absurd now. Um, always was, but I think this has given us an opportunity to really be like, okay, if we can't make anything that looks even vaguely like theatre for a while, let's take a step back. Let's look at anti-racism in our practice. Let's look at how our processes can support mental health in a much better way. But I suppose that's all structural, not about the form. I mean, I have great hopes that the form will return bigger and bolder than ever to some glorious, immersive, interactive, stroking, intimate performance. Um, One day, I hope to be stroking audience members again, conceptually. (laughs) But um, yeah, I think for the meantime, it's obviously pushing us in like a digital direction, which is wonderful for me because it's I didn't have to digital pivot I already digital pivoted a while ago so I think we will be using technology in new ways I think we'll be looking at health and safety in ways that we never wanted to imagine but I suspect is quite good yeah so I'm feeling cautiously ambitious so the theatre industry is catching up with you essentially I was just wondering a bit about VR and AR and theatre and what for you drew you to that it's such a specific version of the form especially in an industry where people constantly talk about the live and they think about digital as not being live so what took you towards that well I started making immersive theatre so the interaction between immersive theatre and, say, 360 film. For people that don't know, 360 film is exactly what you would imagine. It's a camera, usually static, and, you know, can do lots of things. But the film is 360 degrees, so you need to view it in a headset. Or you can view it on Chrome and things, but it's better in a headset. So it's like a, you're in the film. So the transition between immersive theatre and that is reasonably simple. Part of the reason is I'm queer and my work it definitely evolves from a, a queer praxis is 360 film is really non-hierarchical as a medium because it doesn't really matter as a director if I want you to look in front of you you've got 360 degrees of vision you can turn around and look the other way it doesn't really matter what I think you should be looking at so there's real exciting democracy between all parts of the film and that at the time I was really thinking about queer history and what was visible and invisible and the things that we have decided are important and the things that have been missed out. And the thing about 360 film for me is that you're always missing something. There's always a behind you. So there might be a beautiful, well-choreographed piece of dance happening behind you and you have no idea. And that I actually find incredibly exciting conceptually. So you have this this whole world that you immerse someone in and you really co-create. I think of the audience kind of like an editor in that sense. Like I'm the filmmaker And the audience is the editor. They choose where they're looking and when, and they choose what's important. They build the story in their head. So for me, my interest in VR came from thinking about 360 film and its its potential to not only immerse someone somewhere, but give them real agency over how that story unfolded. And how do you dramaturge and direct something that has, in its very nature, like in its essence, a lack of control over the audience's experience? I think because... I've made so much immersive and interactive performance. It actually wasn't that. It was just the same thing, but I whacked a camera in the middle. It wasn't wasn't particularly sophisticated (laughs) in terms of a shift in practice. I suppose what you're thinking about is a lot of trying to make as much as possible everything interesting, which is a ridiculous way of making work. But it's like, okay, if they aren't going to look over there, is what's going on over here equally as worth watching, which is all about spatial dramaturgy. So you just have to develop this skill of telling story with space as much as with action. Can you give me an example of spatial dramaturgy in action? I suppose on the nose example would be like 
if you're making some kind of murder mystery thing and you've plopped a 360 camera in the middle of a old Victorian looking living room, they're like books on the shelves. You can tell a story with that. And the paperweight lying on the floor covered in blood. Yeah, okay, that's telling a more obvious story, but it's the relationship between all those things. Like if you'd walk into a museum, like I think about the museum on Glasgow Green and there's a bit where you can go into an old tenement and it's like every part of that room is telling a story and it's the exact same principle. You're just, you're just filming it. And it's what theatre directors and set designers have done since the beginning of time. You're just doing it on four planes, not end on. And with like huge proximity, right? Yeah. I was just thinking there's no um, broad brush stroke there. Something that I really love about 360 film, particularly the kind of cameras I use, is the foreshortening is really weird. It's basically a ring around the camera about a metre away where everything's like beautifully sharp and lovely. And then beyond that is a bit blurry and any closer is a little bit weird. So there is smart things you can do with where you place things in the frame and how far away things are. It also does this really nice thing where I think every single VR film I've ever made has someone running at the camera very fast because the depth of field is really weird. So it makes it look like someone's sort of coming up to you too fast. Because you've covered a lot of different narrative forms, I guess, like things that are more democratic, things that are more experience based. Does it lend itself to your traditional narrative? Does it, is it much more suited to more environmental work? There's lots of people telling really brilliant, sort of quite traditional linear storytelling on it, which works really well. There's a study that came out of Columbia about people's empathetic response to VR, and it's so much higher than text-based or photo-based work. So what we know about VR is that if you tell a story in VR, the audience member's empathetic response is going to be much higher. And the correlation between that and how well they remember that story also been proven. So after two and five weeks, someone is much more likely to be able to recall that story if they've seen it in VR than if they've read it in a text. And the other interesting thing about that study is they said that participants were much more likely to take, and I'm quoting it, political or social action afterwards. So the thing that VR is incredibly good at is immersing you in a narrative. And that narrative can be sort of reasonably obscure and full of spatial dramaturgy and other fancy theory words, or it can be quite literally a story and you're trying to convince someone of, you know, for example, there's a great VR film about Grenfell and interviewing people that used to live in Grenfell. So yeah, I think VR really lends itself to all forms of storytelling in the way that theatre does. I mean, that's phenomenal. It's basically like an empathy tool. Yeah. It must have a different like relationship to your neurology then yeah. if it affects memory like that I always think of it as like uh you know when people talk about teaching you know like if someone tells you something in front of a class you might remember it for five seconds but if you experience it you'll remember it for five years so mm. what VR is attempting to do is make you experience something not necessarily just see something just going back to what you said about queer praxis and a sort of queering of the form is there a way that your queerness shows up in your practice that maybe wouldn't be the obvious ways that a listener might assume. I suppose an intersectional queerness is really part of my process. And partly that's to do with really boring admin stuff, like making sure that contracts are always gender neutral. And I have quite a lot of rules for myself. So I don't present work that in spaces that don't have gender neutral toilets, for example. I now don't ever use a conventional theatre process. I would never go into a rehearsal room six days a week. I think it's completely ridiculous that that's that's a system that is expected of people but for a lot of people I mean obviously we know that queer people often are at higher risk of having mental health problems and 
building a structure for rehearsals where you don't have to be in these really long, really intense periods, particularly like tech week. Tech week is awful. There's not a human on the planet that thinks tech week is a great way of making work or making people feel healthy. Inaccessible, like across the board. Yeah, across so many different intersections. So yeah, I suppose I, I try and build empathy and care into the ways in which I'm making work. And I think that's a big way that, that queerness features, as well as talking about lesbian sex and interviewing dominatrixes. <laughs> Both are important. Yeah, it's as, a, as a global picture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that sounds like mental health is at the heart of your making in terms of how you are in the room. And I wonder, have you bumped into places where that isn't the case? And how do you deal with that if you have? Yeah, I think people are getting much better about it. I think it's the vacuum cleaner has a mental health rider. And I remember thinking about that. And actually, I now have quite a few riders for things. And putting something in a document and sending it to someone slightly distances it from me as Leo asking someone, can you please do this for me because I'm a human being, which is a shame. Similarly with like the gender neutral toilets thing, if it's a rule, people are like, oh, okay, well, that's a rule. Whereas mm. if it's something that you're approaching, it's like, oh, can we, can we chat about this? Then I found people to be less responsive. Whereas if I lay things down as like, I need this support, otherwise I won't be working on your project, then then it tends to go down better. I suppose I'm just very fortunate in the in the fact that as a freelance artist, I self-produce a lot of my own work. Whether that's lucky or not is debatable, but it, it, it does mean that like I'm setting up my own structures, I'm applying for my own funding, I'm producing, or I'm working with a producer, and I've invited them in and said this is how I'm going to work. I'm not, I guess, at a point in my career where many theatres are offering me cash and and structures within which I have to work. I'm sort of creating my own, so there's a load of freedom in that. You mentioned gender neutral toilets. There, I have worked on shows where we've put that ask in the package and it's been met with a a host of responses shall we say and I was wondering if you because part of like putting queerness into your process and working as an artist that like forefronts their queerness is obviously meeting queerphobia or transphobia in different forms have you found that across the board and if so how have you met it like what do you do with that yeah I mean the the toilets thing is has been huge particularly in the last three years there's a lot of turfs in Scotland in Scottish theatre why is um, that? So What's happening? <laughs> I think it comes from a generation of feminists that have fought very hard for some rights and they are stuck in a narrative that is really gender binary. And also they are scared of a really strong patriarchal system that they know is very difficult, that they know can take rights away as quickly as they gave them. And they have sadly been completely hoodwinked by a patriarchal system that is very keen on in inviting more division and making sure that we're all fighting each other and not not actually fighting the people we need to be fighting. I mean, the classic like example of this is the argument that women are, are scared of gender-neutral toilets or even trans-inclusive toilets because men might come in and rape them in the toilets. And it's like, well, even in your sentence, you're scared of men, you're not scared of trans women. I'm not aware of a single case of a trans woman assaulting anyone in a bathroom. I'm aware of a lot of cases of trans women being assaulted in bathrooms. And I think that's what we just have to keep reiterating is like, okay, if we're scared of men raping women in bathrooms, we need to address men raping women in bathrooms. That's a totally valid fear and let's address that. But let's not have that in the same conversation about whether all women should have the rights 
to a toilet and that's affecting all all women because now people are gender policing and cis butch women are, are also being I'm using this in quotation marks but accused of being trans and should you be in the right toilets in a way that actually I'm not aware of a, as a community we've had before that this kind of real policing of not just gender identity but gender expression but I am heartened by the increasing number of gender neutral toilets that I'm seeing and I think the proof will be in the pudding there like the the lack of statistics about we're not seeing big articles in like the Guardian a month after a gender neutral toilet was open saying oh my god harassment rates have gone up tenfold so I think we'll just keep seeing the success of them and that will be proof enough to convince more and more people to come on board. Yeah, I can agree with you more. I think you articulated that so perfectly there. Like I'm going to steal sentences from what you said because <laughs> the articulacy around the argument seems that, like one of the very few modes of resistance to it at the moment. Yeah, and I think particularly as a cis woman, it really is my job to keep trying to like, I mean, practice in the bathroom mirror, like what do you say? I certainly have been testing out different modes of, of response to be like, okay, what gets me the furthest? One thing that I have found interestingly useful in in having conversations with people that are resistance is conversations around the wider use of a gender neutral toilet, particularly thinking about like dads with young girls and like parents with a child of an opposite gender that need to help their child pee. (laughs) Just like really fundamentally like need to go into a bathroom without feeling like anxious or ashamed and wanting to support their child and not be like, oh, God, I'm either going to have to like awkwardly sneak in and apologize to everyone or ring my wife, for example, to like come down and like, can you take our daughter into the toilet? That's an interesting point as well. Like, obviously, gender neutral toilets have a really wide use for a wide range of people. True. The breaking of that binary has got benefits, uh, untold benefits for like literally everyone at every point in the spectrum. Yeah, I'm very with you. I wondered if you want to speak a bit about Produced Moon, which makes such exciting, varied work. Is it always with young people? Is that right? No, no. I mean, it's partly because of you as a young person, there was a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of young people related funding about. We do make a lot of participatory work. So the last thing we were sort of cruelly cut short on was we're making a drag king flash mob with a sort of variety of women and non-binary people of and the final thing will be of, of all ages and we'll do big flash mobs. And the dream, right, is that we like get 100 Jarrah Kings in like Canary Wharf. Yes, like, please. <laughs> uh, it'll also be a 360 film as well. I mean, the act, the mega dream is that we're doing it simultaneously in six cities across Europe. So um, any funders on the line, give us a bell. We do things like that. I similarly have a participatory practice where we make games. We use a software called Twine, which makes like the choose your own adventure books where you're like, oh, Jimmy's walking down a wood. Do you go left or do you go right? <laughs> and then it's like, go to page 50 if, if you want to go right. It's sort of, a, I guess, a digital version of those. So we've been working for some years now with Platform and Easter House, which is a really interesting form, actually, because unlike sort of, I suppose, in, again, in quotation marks, but like theatre youth work, we work with a lot of young men because young men think games are cool they are but it's socially acceptable for young men to be into games and want to make games so it's bringing a different audience or a a different participant to our work than when we would sort of advertise for like oh do you want to make some beer in a way I think it's really interesting but our work as Produce Moon is fundamentally interactive and sort of quite DIY grabby at any tech we can get our hands on so we've done like performances through phone calls through texts through weird online websites 
collaborated with like AI, AI learning researchers and games designers and software developers. So we have a primarily interactive practice and sometimes that's with young people or sometimes that's not. And in 2014, which is a long time ago now, but you did a piece about a deadly virus, isn't that oh right? God, I know. <laughs> also, so as part of that process, we did a little like, oh, where do we think the world will be? Because it was, I think it was set in 2020, like, honest to God, where do we think it will be? And no joke, we predicted both Brexit and that Scotland wouldn't be independent and no there was way. a deadly virus. Wow. So I fear my own power now. <laughs> yeah, can you tell us about 2040? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 2040 war mass war yeah um, yeah <laughs> we're gonna regret um, this podcast <laughs> yeah we really are that was such a fun fun show to make that has not aged well actually we were discussing at the end 2019 because it was such a fun show it was very like genre it was like virus taken over the world escape to a bunker there's a conspiracy theory yeah it was Fun and we were thinking about bringing it back and then March it and we were like oh deeply insensitive nope <laughs> so quite a good example of the work that Mel who also runs produced me with me the work that we make because that's it's like a heavy genre show it's a video game in a show but at the heart of that is a moral question actually about like a sort of social experiment about do you save yourself or do you save other people and at the end of the show there's two doors in the space and the conceit is that you open one door and the other one locks forever and you can only open one door and the audience every time physically divided the space and were like, we want to go down into this bunker and save ourselves, or we want to go back into the outside, take the risk, maybe share this cure that we've got with the rest of the world. And it was really interesting because you'd see this social dynamic play out every time and couples would be split. One would be on one side of the room screaming at the other one. Like People would use the set, like stand on chairs to appear more dominant. Male voices always came to the front. Almost always people decided there was a democratic process and there should be voting. And then almost always that was at some point overruled. One time the audience was like having this big debate and this kid just like snuck really slowly around the side of the room, grabbed the doorknob and then opened it really quickly. And like, <laughs> everyone was just like, what the? Oh my God. Like it was not, it's actually a terrible show to experience because they were sort of getting into the heart of this sort of like, you know, big philosophical question. And um, yeah, this kid was like, nah, I'm shortcutting this. He's an anarchist. He's the Black Swan yeah. event. He just yeah, like... yeah. <laughs> I saw as well that you have made a 360 degree film called We Are in a State of Emergency, which is about climate change, I guess. Is that, that's quite a slim description of it, but it seems to be about particularly young people's relationship to climate change. I wondered what it was like to make that because those are the voices that are going to be living with the future. What came up as you made that and how was that process? A rage, a lot of rage. The film is about rage and, and people, the film is 90% young people screaming at lampposts <laughs> in a sort Fair. of artfully positioned way. Working again at Platform with an amazing group of, of young artists. But yeah, mainly just lots of feelings of anger and, and confusion and, and disappointment, as you'd expect. I'd be interested, it was quite a short process, I'd be interested to make that show again now having lived through most of 2020. What is your vision of the, the future of theatre? Both how do you think it's going to go and also what would you like it to be? My vision for the work that, that I want to make is is really integrating VR into theatre and really bringing this sense of like visceral immersion, which I think we're all going to 
have really missed, whether that's just being in these new spaces in these new worlds that we won't be able to be getting a 999 flight to Rome anymore. But we can bring that through VR. We can we can travel in new ways and that feels really exciting. I want to be able to touch people. I want to bring back all this like immersive, like the work of Adrian Howells, like that style of, of intimate performance. I think we're going to desperately need and want I don't ever want to see a white lineup again. I don't ever want to see an all male lineup again. I want to see like trans creatives leading as they already are all kinds of forms of work. I really want to see theatre taking a piece of this VR pie, actually. Like we know if you look at the adoption curve of technology, like the rate of adoption of colour TV, of PCs, of the internet, VR is doing the exact same thing, particularly mobile AR. It's not a case of, of whether, it's when and who's getting it. And at the moment, we can leave it to the tech boys or theatre can say, you know what, I want a piece of this because it's fun. It's joyous. And like theme parks are already doing it. You can put on a headset, be in Star Wars and be shaken about on a roller coaster. It's amazing. Theatre can do that. Think about the work of Punch Drunk, of Yumi Bum Bum Train. Like there's these big, huge shifts we can make. We just have to be brave and do it. And I'm not saying everyone has to do that. Please come join me. I want to do it. Some of us will go off and do that. And, and some of us, you know, do other things. My vision for theatre at the moment is one that is more spacious, more inclusive, one in which more people sit back and say, this isn't for me, someone else take the reins. Yeah, I mean, it's a really hard time, isn't it? Because at the moment, I feel very much like theatre is competing for money that could be going to food banks. And and food banks are more important. You know, it, I think we have to really fight for structural change from the top down because that is not a conversation that should be had it always needs to be and people need to eat people need a roof over their head people need basic human rights people need more than basic human rights people need love and sex and humor and and fun and art I think theatre is a really good place to show us all the things that we need but there's a lot of other things to sort out first platforms actually been great at that platforms since the pandemic has pivoted their efforts into giving food to the local community and making sure that that need is met and I think theatres can be being more responsive and being like okay yeah we can make theatre but we also have huge numbers of skills and and people and and what can we be doing so yeah my hope is for a a more expansive more inclusive more responsive theatre I think more agile with some VR Thank you for listening to our interview with Leo Ray Gasson. Do check out leonieraygasson.com to see what she's up to and tune into our next episode where I'll be speaking to producer and academic Jess Bruff about how they turned Fringe of Colour from a ticketing initiative into a completely brilliant and fully online festival in August 2020. The music for this podcast was composed by Patricia Panther with sound design by Richard Bell and I've been your host, Debbie Hannon. Please do check out traverse.co.uk to see our upcoming work in Trav3, our online venue. The Traverse is funded by Creative Scotland and the City of Edinburgh Council with additional support from the Scottish Government Performing Arts Venues Relief Fund. Traverse Theatre Scotland Limited is a registered charity, number SC002368.